Straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. I recorded this episode about a year ago, but I've been sitting on it. I've been hesitant to release this episode because it expresses raw emotions and a little bit of explicit language. It's an episode responding to listener questions about struggles with faith and doubt. I've decided to release it because I think that your questions about how to deal with doubt are important. Does the providential God care about you? How should you think about God's providence? Well, stick around for some terrible advice from yours truly. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear in the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here I am chatting about providence and struggles of faith. Enjoy. Over Christmas break, I did an interview on Parker Setacas's show. We were chatting about my experience with the Mars Hill Church and how I almost became Mark Driscoll's ghostwriter. The responses to that episode were interesting. I even had a message from a former Mars Hill staffer asking if we could talk so that you know they could seek forgiveness from me. And I said yes, but the former staffer never followed through. I'm not really sure what happened there. But anyway, lots of people felt that their minds were blown by the story. And in the episode, Parker and I, we, we struggled to find a moral or like a lesson that we could learn from this whole experience. I find that underlying intuition really fascinating. Like both of us wanted there to be a lesson to learn from this whole experience. I suppose the idea is that all of this happened for a specific reason. Parker and I were not the only ones who felt this way. Several people messaged me saying that through God's providence, I was spared from the toxic culture of Mars Hill. Providence. Through God's providence, I was spared from the toxic culture of Mars Hill. Is that right? I'll come back to the theme of providence in a little bit. That is one of the two major themes of today's episode. Here's the other major theme of today's episode. Struggles with faith. How can I trust in God's providence? There's another kind of response that I got from my Mars Hill story. Several people messaged me asking how I dealt with my struggles of faith. These people connected with something that I said earlier on in the episode. In the episode of Parker, I talk about how I went through a period of asking if God really cared about me. I thought God had a particular plan for my life, and and then just all of that fell apart. When that fell apart, I was left with all sorts of questions and mixed emotions. Does God actually have a plan for my life? Did God abandon me? Maybe God never actually had a plan for my life. Am I just an idiot for thinking that God had a plan for me? Or maybe God does have a plan for me, but his plan was very different from what I thought it was. I mean, how could I be so incredibly wrong about God's plan for my life? I mean, God, what's going on? Because right now my life is just coming, crashing down around me, and I don't know what to do. I received a lot of heartfelt messages from people asking me about this experience and how I dealt with these questions. This is because they too have felt this way, and they too have asked these same kind of questions. So here's the major theme of today's episode, providence and struggles with faith. I'm going to give you some of my own reflections on these topics. What I will say reflects different moments of my life. Some of the emotions and views expressed will be from dark places in my life. Some of those are going to be very raw emotions. 
And then some of the emotions and views that I will express are from more hopeful times in my life. And then any advice that I will offer towards the end of the episode about how to deal with struggles of faith, they're going to be tentative at best. I'm really not sure if I'm right about anything I will say today, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. We believe in God's providence. Every Christian subculture has its own slogans, its own buzzwords. I've had to move around a lot for school and work, so I've had to encounter many different kinds of Christian subcultures in different places in the US, the UK, and Finland, um, and even other countries across Europe. I've, had to, I've worked and I've volunteered in different kinds of churches, so I've witnessed different fashion trends just kind of come and go. It is often hard for me to navigate these different Christian subcultures because the weird slogans and buzzwords that they use just don't really make sense to me. I often have no idea what people are talking about. Here's some different examples of this. Ryan, have you had a Kairos moment? I, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I just don't know what that is. Ryan, we are a messy church. Well, good for you. Maybe you should hire a cleaner. Why are you telling me you're a messy? What is that? Ryan, we are a vertical church, not a horizontal church. Okay, I guess I don't really understand the spatial and geographical oddity of your church building, but, you know, good for you, I guess. Ryan, we're looking for a pastor who can cast visions. Sorry, but I'm, I'm not a wizard. I'm not sure I can cast any visions for you. Ryan, we have a Trinitarian style of worship, not a Unitarian style of worship. Oh, oh really? I didn't notice. I mean, you're singing the same boring songs as everybody else. I mean, I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. I mean, Christian subcultures, like all subcultures, they love their buzzwords and slogans. They sound exciting. They can make you feel like you're part of a movement of some sort. Yet one problem with slogans and buzzwords is that they can be old ideas and new clothing. As my dad will often point out to me, sometimes the buzzwords are really just repackaged ideas from previous generations. There's nothing new here. We're just giving things different names so that we can sound hip and edgy. There's nothing wrong per se with repackaging old ideas. There's just this worry that I have that when we rebrand certain things, it can create shallow attitudes towards the past. If you're part of a new movement, you might feel like you're doing things so much better than that previous generation who got everything wrong. But how are you going to feel once you realize that you're doing the exact same thing as the previous generation, but with a different outfit. Perhaps as long as we look fabulous, it doesn't really matter that we're doing the same thing as everybody else did before us. I don't know. Another problem is that the buzzwords don't always have a clear meaning. We might put a huge emphasis on how we're going to do life together, but no one has a clue what that means. If I ask what doing life together means, I will be told that it means that I'm plugged in to my community. 
If I find that doing life together is creating all sorts of problems, I might be told that I need to lean into the gospel more and love on the people around me. I'm not really sure how to lean into the gospel. I usually read sitting down, but hopefully you get my point. When our subculture is saturated with shallow slogans that don't have any clear meaning, it can cause a lot of heartache. When our slogans have no clear meaning, people will input whatever meaning they want to. And that can be harmless, but it can also be dangerous. It can be an opportunity for people to hijack the slogan for their own grab at power. And we have many examples of this in recent history, but I don't want to get political on this show. So I'll just assume that you can think of your own examples. One of the biggest struggles that I have is when shallow slogans are used to guide one's life. A shallow slogan can be a very terrible guiding principle in your life. I think that some of the various ways Christians talk about God's providence can be quite misleading. So here are some examples. When I was going through a serious breakup and felt like God had abandoned me, I remember hearing a lot of people tell me, I believe in God's providence. Now, the sentiment behind the slogan was genuine. It always was. I knew that. I get that. And I appreciate that. But it was very hard for me to accept that at the time. At that moment, I was questioning if God actually did have a plan for me. And the mere assertion that God has a plan for me was not always comforting. I mean, sometimes it was, but sometimes it just pissed me off. I remember pointedly telling a friend, Yes, I also believe in God's providence, but that doesn't mean that God's plan for my earthly life will be good for me. God's plan might include me suffering for the next 40 years and then I die. And the truth is, we have biblical examples of this. I mean, consider the prophet Jeremiah. The way the story goes, you can see God's providence all over Jeremiah's life. But it'll be hard to say that the author of Lamentations had an overall happy life. Now, people often quote the Bible saying that God works all things for good. And I honestly believe that. But what outraged me was the shallowness of it being used as a slogan. What exactly is, is meant to be conveyed by saying this? I mean, that, that, I, that I should be hopeful that things will soon get better? What if God's plan for my earthly life does not include things getting better anytime soon? I mean, I genuinely had that thought. I wondered if God's plan for me involved me being jobless and alone for the rest of my earthly life. Is that really a God I can worship? Is that really a great and glorious plan? Through God's providence, you were spared from the toxic culture at Mars Hill. The truth be told, my experience with Mars Hill was just the tip of the iceberg of everything that I was going through at that point in my life. The Mars Hill saga barely scratches the surface of the awful relationships that I was processing at the time. As I look back, I can safely say that I dodged a bullet. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind about that. But I don't know what meaning to ascribe to it. Was it really part of God's plan that I be spared from Mars Hill? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. 
sometimes I've wondered if God did a very good job at sparing me from toxic work environments. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've worked at some great places. After finishing my PhD, I had a postdoc at the University of Notre Dame. Though I was going through, you know, a dark night of the soul, I can easily say that I had an overall good work environment there. There was a really amazing cohort of researchers at the Center for Philosophy of Religion that year. A lot of really great people that I got to work with. And then after that, I went to the University of Cambridge. Douglas Headley was an excellent mentor that year. And then other people in the department, they were supportive. They were, they were very friendly. My experience at Cambridge is just overall positive. And then I briefly worked at a boarding school after that. That was a, it was a weird experience, but my students were great and my boss was supportive. So maybe you could say that God spared me from a toxic work environment. But then again, I, I have my doubts. So three years after allegedly being spared from the toxic culture at Mars Hill, I returned to Scotland for a three-year fellowship. There, I experienced the most toxic bullying culture of my life. I remember this one moment where I had a meeting with the head of the Scottish Union for Colleges and Universities. And this guy had come all the way down from Glasgow to meet with me and my union representative to discuss my case. After looking through the files and examining my case, the head of the Scottish Union was just outraged. He was utterly appalled at everything that I had gone through. And he said this with such disgust in his voice. And these people call themselves Christian? And he was absolutely right. The way that various people at the Scottish University treated me cannot properly be described as Christian. I can give you some other colorful words that describe them. And the most polite phrase that comes to mind is a den of vipers. But I'm not going into the details of my time at this place. I mention it to illustrate a particular point. There's a question that I sometimes have in the back of my mind. Why would God spare me the toxic environment of Mars Hill only to place me in an even worse environment? I mean, I believe in God's providence, but what kind of providential plan is that? How to deal with doubt. As I reflect on all of these and many other experiences in my life, I've come to see God's providence very differently. To be clear, I'm not talking about theories of providence like Calvinism, Molinism, and open theism. I mean, as far as I know, any of those theories could be true. I mean, one of my research agendas for the next few years is to look closely at these different theories and try to figure out, you know, what's really what's going on. But what I'm driving at is the importance of having a deeper understanding of divine providence and learning how to live with doubt and hardship. I mean, recall what I said at the beginning of this episode. In my interview with Parker, we were both trying to find a moral to my awful story. Like, was there a lesson to learn from all of this? And in that interview, I had nothing to say. There is no lesson. Sometimes shit just happens. Well, I've decided that maybe there are some important lessons to learn from all of this. And so here are a few lessons that I have learned. Lesson number one, 
have a healthy dose of skepticism about what God's plan is for your life. When I look back at past relationships with lovers, friends, academics, I've noticed a pattern about myself. When I was younger, I wanted to see God's providential hand everywhere in my life. I mean, I really thought that this girl was the right person for me. I really thought that this person would make good on their promise to give me a job. I really thought that this person would be a great academic mentor. I really thought that I could see God's hand in all of it. But as I look back, I notice a flaw in myself. I am really good at overlooking massive red flags. Why? Well, partly due to my own diminished sense of my self-worth, but also partly due to my optimism that God works all things for the good. When I look back at my life, I can easily identify when I overlooked some really obvious red flags just because I was so sure that God would make everything turn out all right. What I don't fully understand is why I thought I could see God's hand everywhere. I mean, if I was getting any signals from God, it was probably God saying, Ryan, look at the massive red flags. That person's terrible. You need to run away. I know that I ignored obvious red flags because I was relying on shallow slogans about God's providence. I was looking at a bunch of empty church slogans instead of basing my decisions on a deeper understanding of providence. J.I. Packer offers a really good bit of advice here. In his classic devotional book, Knowing God, Packer discusses God's wisdom and then what it means when God gives you wisdom. So Packer is a reformed theologian, for those of you who don't know. So, so Packer believes that God has a meticulous providential plan. Now let me read a section from Packer because I, think, I just think it's really important. So Packer says that God will give you wisdom if you ask for it. But Packer warns that this wisdom is not a deep insight into God's plan. So here's a quote from him. He writes, The mistake that is commonly made is to suppose that the gift of wisdom consists in a deepened insight into the providential meaning and purpose of events going on around us, an ability to see why God has done what he has done in a particular case, and what he is going to do next. People feel that if they were really walking close to God so that he could impart wisdom to them freely, then they would discern the real purpose of everything that happened to them, and it would be clear to them every moment how God was making all things work together for good. Such people spend much time poring over the book of Providence, wondering why God should have allowed this or that to take place, whether they should take it as a sign to stop doing one thing and start doing another, or what they should deduce from it. If they end up baffled, they put it down to their own lack of spirituality. Christians suffering from depression, physical, mental, or spiritual, may drive themselves crazy with this kind of futile inquiry. For it is futile. Make no mistake about that. It is true that when God has given us guidance by application of principles, he will on occasion confirm it by unusual providences, which we will recognize at once as cooperative signs. But this is quite a different thing from trying to read a message about God's secret purposes out of every unusual thing that happens to us. So far from the gift of wisdom consisting in the power to do this, the gift actually presupposes our conscious inability to do it. So what, what strikes me about this passage from Packer is that he identifies the exact mistake that I had made in the past. I was relying on shallow slogans about providence and I was mistakenly thinking that I could see God's hand everywhere. What I should have done was have a healthy dose of skepticism about my ability to discern God's plan for my life. 
I should have relied on more clear principles for guiding my life instead of shallow slogans and an unrealistic sense of my ability to discern God's plan. I learned that lesson the hard way. Lesson number two, learning to forgive myself. I've spent a lot of time processing my past. I've had to learn how to forgive others for the things that they've done to me. I've had to learn how to ask for forgiveness for the things that I've done to others. And in this process, I have come to understand in a very personal way that forgiveness presupposes that someone did something wrong. Someone used their freedom to harm another person, perhaps intentionally or perhaps through negligence. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, there were times where I felt like an idiot. I felt stupid for thinking that God had a specific plan for me. I felt stupid for thinking that I could so easily discern what that plan is. I felt awful for ignoring so many red flags and letting certain people abuse me. I mean, after all, God has given me the power of reason. Why was I not using my ability to reason to see the ways people were abusing me? Why did I let the abuse go on for so long? I, I don't really have answers to those questions. But I did have to learn how to forgive myself. Sometimes I was being too hard on myself, uh, that's for sure. In which case, then I had to learn how to forgive myself for being so hard on myself. Sometimes we need to learn how to forgive ourselves for the mistakes we've made in the past and try to learn from them and move on. Lesson number three, revisit the evidence. During my year at Notre Dame, Stephen Weikstra gave a talk on the Reverend Venn, uh, the guy who invented the Venn diagram. In Weikstra's talk, he discussed evidence and feelings of doubt. Now, one of the things that Stephen said that really stood out to me was this. The evidence for God is always there. It does not matter what kind of doubt you are experiencing. The evidence is always there. Your emotions about your life situation, they will change over time. But the evidence is always there. And when you're ready and when you're able, revisit the evidence. This is one of the ways that I have dealt with my own struggles of faith. I go back and I revisit the evidence. I force myself to sit down and confront what I know to be true. And this has helped me in various ways, not just in my spiritual life, but in my day-to-day -day life. See, when I've been involved with people who were gaslighting me in very serious ways, I had to start coming up with ways to handle that. What I did was I would create a document that listed all of the evidence I had for what happened. When the gaslighter would confuse me, I would go back and revisit the evidence. It helped me get my head straight. And I do the same thing when I'm struggling with my relationship with God. Does God exist? I revisit the evidence for the existence of God, and I still find it compelling. Was Jesus raised from the dead? I revisit the evidence, and I still find it compelling. I can acknowledge that even though my heart is not always there, the evidence is still there to be examined. Lesson number four, the importance of having a deeper understanding of divine providence. One of the things that I have been harping about in this episode is the danger of shallow slogans about divine providence. As I've studied more and investigated the different theories of providence, I've come to a deeper appreciation for how little I know about God's plan. I can still affirm that God works all things for good, uh, but I think that God has a very long-term plan. I don't know how long it will take for all things to turn out good. I try not to expect that God will make things good in the immediate future. 
I don't always like that. I and mean, in fact, sometimes I just, I just hate it. I just hate how long it takes for justice to come pouring down. But I remind myself that God does not count patience as we do. God is an eternal being. As an eternal being, a thousand years, I mean, that's just like a day for God. God is much more patient with us than we can fully grasp. And I still believe that everything happens for a reason. I don't care what anyone says. I like some version of the principle of sufficient reason. You can take that principle from my cold, dead hands. But I have come to see what reasons or explanations are in a very different way. So consider me stubbing my toe in the middle of the night. I believe that this happened for a reason. Like in that moment, I, I might start swearing. I might even curse God. And I might demand an answer for why God would allow me to stub my toe in the middle of the night. And the answer very well could be the following. God has deemed it good that there should exist a universe that runs according to uniform laws of nature so that creatures can perform efficacious actions that impact the world around them. Why did God allow me to stub my toe? Well, God could tell me, because that's what happens when you don't turn the lights on in the middle of the night and you have too much confidence in your ability to navigate a dark room. I gave you freedom and reason, and I'm allowing you to use your freedom and reason as you see fit. Maybe turn the light on next time. Now, my point with this illustration is that everything could happen for a reason, but that does not mean that the reason is terribly interesting. Perhaps lots of things in God's providential plan have terribly uninteresting explanations. The answer might often be, I gave creatures freedom, and that is just what happens when creatures use their freedom. It might be that not every event in God's plan has some super specific special purpose. God might not be a micromanager when it comes to providentially governing the world. God might have a more general approach to providence. Lesson number five. This might be the most important lesson of this episode. Appreciate thoughts and prayers. Now, I mean, now look, like I understand how cliche it is to express thoughts and prayers. And I also know how cliche it is to just mock the idea of thoughts and prayers. And when politicians and corporations, when they express thoughts and prayers in the face of tragedy, it strikes us as shallow virtue signaling. And that's because it is nothing more than shallow virtue signaling. I mean, it's even worse when these people send out so-called thoughts and prayers when they are in a position to actually help people, but they don't. I mean, that's just infuriating. But what about genuine thoughts and prayers? When I was going through my dark night of the soul, I found it difficult to regularly pray to God. I was so angry that I didn't know what would come out of my mouth. Well, actually, I, I did know what would come out of my mouth. In Jeremiah 20, verse 7, the prophet is really explicit. He starts his prayer with, God, you deceived me. And I felt just like Jeremiah. I wanted to tell God, fuck you, you lied to me. But it was hard for me to say that prayer. I didn't have the courage to say that prayer like Jeremiah did. Partly because I knew where the prayer would end. So just like Jeremiah in verse 9, I knew my prayer would turn into something else. I would find myself saying, God, you've given me your word, and I can feel it deep within my bones, and I'm just tired of holding it in. I wasn't ready to say that just yet. I still had too much anger. I still had way too much grief to process. I wasn't ready yet to be a reluctant theologian. Though I often found myself unable to pray, I greatly appreciated the prayers of others when I knew it was genuine. So one day, my sister and I, we went to Starbucks. She was reading some fashion magazines that I got her, and I was just filling out job applications. 
And I filled out applications for schools that I, I just knew they were not going to hire me. And then I even received a rejection email from another job while we were there. It was just, it was just soul crushing. And I remember feeling like I was about to break down crying. But Kelly reached over and she grabbed my hand. And she told me that I could cry if I needed to. And then she also told me that she's praying for me every night. My faith was struggling, but hers was strong at that moment. I knew that my sister and my parents, I knew they were praying for me every night. And I knew it was genuine. And I know that they still do. And I greatly appreciate that. And that's not all. There were other people praying for me as well. My uncle Joey, he used to teach the Sunday school class in Georgia. And I, I volunteered to teach at that class a few times when I was living there. Every week until my uncle died, he asked that class to pray for me and pray that I would find a job. And they did, and I know it was genuine. My uncle went to a class reunion at our college in Georgia. The dean of the school came up to Joey, knowing that Joey was not long for this world. And he asked Joey if there was anything he could do. And Joey said, he looked him right in the eye and he said, yes, give my nephew a job. Unfortunately, the university did not have the money to hire me. But the fact that my uncle was bold enough to just throw that demand in the dean's face, well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that, that's pretty badass. And I can give you many other stories of people who told me they were praying for me. Like of times when I would speak at a church or a classroom, thinking that I'm, you know, I'm just doing my duty, and, and people would tell me that they were thankful for my work and that they want to pray for my ministry. I would just think, am, am I really doing ministry? Is this what ministry looks like? I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is this. I took comfort knowing that others were genuinely praying for me when I was unable to do it myself. Other people were genuinely offering up prayers and encouraging me when I was too weak, when I was too angry, when I was just too whatever to even speak to God. And that means the world to me. It helped restore my faith in humanity, and it slowly helped restore my faith in God. One of the things that helped restore my relationship with God was recognizing the importance of praying for others. If people were willing to pray for me, I felt that I could pray for them too. Even when I didn't think that God would do anything to help me, I at least thought that God might help the people that I prayed for. And that was one step for me and a long path towards drawing closer to God. So where does this leave me? I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Perhaps I've learned a few things about how to deal with doubt. You know, I've learned a few things about how to view providence. Or maybe I've learned nothing at all. Only time will tell. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 